This is the Hungarian Politics Podcast for May 26th, 2016. Great to have you with us today. I'm Steve Nelson, and this is the show that examines current topics and events on the political scene in Hungary every week. I've got a little bit of a hoarse voice this week, so I apologize for that. In today's program, we listen to what it's like to be a Hungarian working for the EU in Brussels and dealing with the associated hardships. It's a club at the end of the day being in the EU. And sure, maybe their their biggest member, Orban, isn't in town all the time. So when he's not here, they're the ones who are left picking up the pieces from maybe the diplomatic damage that's happening. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. But first, we're going to commemorate an historic date in recent Hungarian political history. Ten years ago, in 2006, then-Prime Minister Ferenc Gyurcsán gave a speech to his fellow members in the Hungarian Socialist Party in the town of Balaton Usud, stressing the need for reform and change within the party. The speech was leaked to the press later in September of that year, and the profanity in the speech, as well as the brutal frankness in which Gyurcsán spoke of his party's conduct over the previous four years, led to massive protests around the country and rioting in Budapest. The Usud speech is seen as one of the most defining events in Hungarian politics over the past decade, perhaps the most defining event during that time. I caught up with longtime foreign correspondent Kester Eddy earlier today to discuss the impact of the Usud speech, how it has influenced Hungarian politics, and whether Durchan has any significant political future. So I'm joined here today with one of Hungary's most venerable foreign correspondents, longtime reporter Kester Eddy. Kester Eddy, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Can you describe yourself a little bit? Uh, how long have you been here in Hungary, and um, who have you worked for in the past? I, I've been here for about 30 years, and uh, for the last 20 or so, I've been mainly writing for the Financial Times, Business New Europe, uh, Economist Intelligence Unit. I don't know. People come along, <laughs> ask me to do things, you know. Well, Castro, today is May 26th, 2016. On this date, 10 years ago, Ferenc Gyurcsán, the prime minister, then prime minister of Hungary, gave a speech at the MSP Congress in Balaton Usud. The speech did not leak out until September, I think September 17th. But can you tell us, what was this speech about, and what did it try to accomplish? Well, uh, the uh, the socialist version, or rather the Jurchan version of what it was about, was to try and shake up the socialist uh, old guard, I guess, and um, and to, to reform the party. Uh, not only did it not do that, but... Um, well, I think it's fair to argue that it's um, it wrecked the party and it wrecked, uh, and many would say, mortally wounded Jurchan for life, um, because it was um, it was well the the, the right wing opposition latched onto the sentence or two where he said something like "We have lied day, morning, and night to the people," um, and forgot the bit where he said "We've got to change" and. Um, uh, and basically clean up our act. Um, and that's become a kind of icon um, 
of belief, uh, a kind of a, a platform of belief, certainly amongst um, Fides and uh, Yobbik faithful, I think. Uh, this, I mean, I th- for many, I remember talking to a, a Fides supporter after that that I knew, and, and for him this was like, well, this Jurchan's speech, to any reasonable person, this must bury him. It's mm. the end. Mm. Um, whereas the, um, I think, well, I'm not so sure about the socialist supporters. I think it shook the socialist supporters. I mean, there was a lot of talk about the profanities in it, which, which I wouldn't mind if... Um, if uh, if the Hungarian the general Hungarian conversation um, was expletive free, whereas in fact you know and I know it's it's <laughs> riddled with it even at quite um, intellectual levels. And this was not a speech that was intended for public consumption. We should say, right? This was not a speech to the public. It was a speech to his own party in, in this behind closed doors. Yes. yes, yes, yeah. Well, of course, there's all sorts of um, uh, various theories that he he released it himself, or you know, I don't know. Um, I tend to go for the straight, uh, fairly straight um, uh, explanation that uh, that he he was uh, seeking to clean up the party. And we um, should also say that this speech was given what uh, shortly after the elections of two thousand six, right? Maybe a month or two afterwards. Um, yeah, the elections in two thousand and six were in April, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah, he Georgian admitted he tried to spend his way out of. Out of tr- out of trouble to stimulate the economy, and then that few months later they started introducing austerity measures to try and uh, and balance the budget. Basically, the reaction in the West was far less. Um, I mean, for those that care, <laughs> was generally oh well, you know, the guys um, the guys kind of cleaning things up. So really, the, the reaction in in the West was um, much. I think it was seen as a positive thing. Almost mm. as a sort of mea culpa, we've got to stop this and change, you know. So it was actually seen, aha, Hungary is kind of going to wake up and he's going to try and clean up, or he's trying to clean up the party and, and government. Whereas, as I said, I think, you know, it, it, it's 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 very interesting how people um, interpret things, almost like a, a sort of mm. religious um, statement by you know one of the religious leaders of the past. This must mean this, <laughs> and it's still true today. I think, although. It will be interesting to do. Um, to do. A, you know, it's interesting when you think about like how Kardar was viewed mm. um, from '56. I mean, if you could have done a street survey in December 1956, or maybe even maybe '58, after the executions were, you know, had been taken their toll, and then of course in 1988, you'd have got a very different viewpoint, and even more so mm. in 1998. Mm. Ten years from now, we might look at it I'm, in a completely different way. I'm wondering about how the Hungarian population will look at it in a different, uh, possibly in a different way. Yes, I, I'm sure for some it's still um, the ultimate uh, label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting. It's not like Bokros, really, you know, because of course um, I, mean, I know people today who say, "Oh, yeah, I, I was against it at the time, but now I realise it was a it was a necessary thing for." Mm for Hungary in the 1990s. I remember he was, uh, for years, he was the least popular politician in the whole country after the Bokros sh- uh, package was I'm introduced. I'm sure so, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure so. Um, and yet, interestingly, you know, in, in, in Bokros's case in particular, no one has ever accused Bokros of being corrupt. Mm-hmm. Not even an accusation. You know, not even a... a um, yeah, so it's kind of... 
I kind of find that interesting. Um, yeah. Getting back to the speech, how well do you think it was received by the people in the party at the time? Was it, um, did it achieve its objective? Well, no. It, it has to be considered a political failure, I think. If, 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 in, if you count politics as something to get you into Parliament, if that's what politics is about. <laughs> um, whether or not it will be seen as a, um, what you might call a sociological failure over the years, historically, that's, that's another matter. And you never know. I mean, Winston Churchill was considered a, a total failure after 1960... When was the Dardanelles? 1916 or whenever it was. And a warmonger, because he warned about Hitler. Uh, Winston Churchill was, uh, I think, in 1938 even, beginning of 38. He was a very marginal figure. Hmm. <laughs> uh, he came back. So you never know. Um, of course, there were very special circumstances. Uh, but then we're living in special circumstances all the time, really, I think. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I think for many people still, it's, it, it's uh, for many on the right, it's still the ultimate um, stigma, if you like. And on the left, no, it, it didn't, did it? I mean, I think they, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but there's, there's too, many, too many people in this part of the world um, don't understand the difference between public money <laughs> and <laughs> private money. <laughs> And um, not just in Hungary. There's something missing in this whole region mm. that people... I mean, of course, there's corruption in the West. Let's not pretend... You know, I'm not saying there's, there's no corruption, but um, there, there, there is the concept that this is not your money if it's, you know, if it's <laughs> the, the city council or something you're representing or parliament or whatever. I have a comment here from a political analyst. I won't say who because this has not been published yet, so I'll just say it's a well-known political analyst. And he says, the collapse of the left wing would not have occurred without it. And in fact, Jobbik was born out of the Usud speech. So that's pretty strong. Do you, th do you really think um, the speech has been that important in the past decade? I suppose it's a very simple, easy uh, foundation stone for that, mm -hmm. um, which... You, could, you know, you, a Jobbik or any, anyone on the right of political spectrum can quote. Um, without it, wouldn't would they have? No, I can't believe it. It's just one of those stones, which is very convenient. Something would have come along. Huh. It's it's it it for the people in the right think of the, on the right, or for a large segment of the Hungarian right. Um, which I don't equate to a UK or US right, but for a large segment, it's a very, very useful foundation stone and, a, and what's the word, a lightning rod mm -hmm. for all the emotions that they feel um, in, the, in their antipathy towards the left, which is nothing to do with rational, uh, rational thinking about economic programs or, or policies. It's 99% to do with emotional attachments and resentments, mm -hmm. in my opinion. You mentioned Winston Churchill being a marginal political figure and then rising, of course, to become one of the, the great political figures of the 20th century. So does Duochan have a chance to come back and um, maybe not necessarily reach the levels of Churchill, but does Duochan have a political future? No, I can't see it. Not at all. But then mm -hmm. I'd have probably said the same thing about Churchill in <laughs> 1938 myself if I'd been alive. There's definitely a need for a new 
personality mm-hmm. uh, in Hungarian politics. You can see that how or people I've been talking to tell me that in, even in the villages which were once um, solidly Fidesz or Jobbik, maybe not, maybe they're still Jobbik, but but in a lot of Fidesz villages, there, there's a lot of disillusionment. Kester Eddy is a longtime journalist and foreign correspondent here in Hungary. Kester, thanks so much for joining us here on the Hungarian Politics Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you. According to political reporter Tara Palmieri, it's not easy being Hungarian in Brussels, the capital of the EU. And Hungarians increasingly find it hard to influence policy and curry favor within the EU. Palmieri wrote an article in Political Europe recently titled, Hungarian? Who me? Confessions of Brussels Pariahs. I spoke with her about this story and asked her to tell us a little bit more about it and explain how this situation has developed. Joining us from Brussels, Belgium, is Tara Palmieri, a reporter and columnist covering EU politics for Political Europe. Tara, it's great to have you on the Hungarian Politics Podcast. Thanks for having me. Tara, you don't cover Hungary exclusively, but you did write a very interesting article a couple of days ago that appeared in Politico. Right. For those who haven't read the article yet, can you fill us in on the gist of the story? Sure. Um, well, I can kind of tell you how I came upon the article. Um, you know, I was hearing about some staff movement in um, Hungarian Commissioner Tibor Navrich's office. Um, you know, I heard there was some grumbling of just general discontent about, you know, kind of the lack of work and initiatives that were coming out. And, you know, I just, I was looking into it. And the more I looked into the issue, I noticed that it wasn't really the commissioner's fault that this was happening, but more that he was put in a dead-end post, one that can't propose legislation, and that he was very badly bruised from the beginning during his initiation, um, the (laughs) hearings in parliament, that he was, you know, taken, citizenship was taken away from him, that he had really wanted to have the post of uh, enlargement. And, you know, I read through the hearing because I didn't, I wasn't here actually in Belgium when it happened. You know, it it was really brutal. I mean, one person actually suggested that he would use not that he would make a Nazi um, book a part of curriculum because of some Nazi sympathizers in Hungary. So it was just really kind of off the wall, brutal. Um, And, you know, I'd heard that he was very guarded and I started talking to different people in the commission, in the DG that he worked with. And I sort of got the feeling that this was sort of a battered commissioner, damaged from a tough hearing, and walking on eggshells. Hmm. And, you know, the more that I looked into it, the more I saw that this, it wasn't just him, that it was sort of a thing that was felt among a lot of people working in the commission that were Hungarian. I had heard stories about kids who were being bullied in schools that were Hungarian. And uh, then, you know, I, I asked Laszlo Andor about it, and he said that he also, you know, had some examples and another commission official told me about that. So it just seemed like it was sort of all over the place. And they had become the whipping boys of the commission, while also, you know, their policies were becoming more popular among the member states uh, in terms of building a wall um, for migration and and just some of the resistance that the member states have been putting up against the commission uh, are kind of reflective of things that uh, Viktor Orban was talking about 
months and months ago. So it was, you know, it, it was a very interesting uh, delve into a culture that, yeah, I don't cover, but, you know, I know people, I know interactions, I know how politics works. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that there was a barrier between Hungary and the kind of influence it could have in the EU. It's clear from your article that there are some long simmering tensions within the EU towards Hungary. But I was wondering if the Hungarian government's recent reaction to the EU migrant crisis is exacerbating these tensions. Did you see any evidence of this? Um, Yeah, of course. But it's not like it's out of the blue. It isn't a shock that Hungary would go against the grain. I mean, they refused to nominate, um, to endorse Juncker for commission president. So they're sort of used to being the ones who stir the pot and probably do a lot of the things that others are afraid to do, like the uh, spokesperson of the, um, the Hungarian government said in his response to the article. Yeah, at the time, it was seen to be crazy that Hungary would erect a wall, protect its borders. And now look at what's going on in Europe. Everybody is, uh, Schengen is falling apart, walls are going up, and mm-hmm. this is how Europe is dealing with it because they're not getting the answers that they want from the commission. So they're taking it into their own hands. Maybe Orban had the foresight before the others to know that this was going to happen. Now, recently, uh, Politico ranked the 28 people who are shaking and stirring Europe, and the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, actually ranked at number one on the list. And Politico gave him a somewhat favorable profile, or at least not unfavorable, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you wrote that, or I didn't know if there was a byline. Okay. Mm -hmm. But your recent article seems to indicate a loss of prestige and influence towards the Hungarian government. I think you, you might be understanding it differently. I'm not saying that the Hungarian government is influential in the council. It is, by far, because of Orban's presence and the fact that he is such a straight shooter, take-no-prisoners type of leader. Um, and he is okay with going against the grain. But I'm talking about like influence in the institutions, in the commission, getting you know getting things for the Hungarians that will help them in terms of developing within the EU. You know, that's where they're lacking. The day-to-day, you know, having an aggressive team inside of the institutions fighting for Hungarian interests. I mean, they don't have that. They have one person outside of Navrčić's cabinet, and he's in fisheries, and they're landlocked. I mean, that's a joke. That was surprising reading that in your article. Yeah, I mean, and you can just, and it is a small, I mean, it is a new member state, but it's not, relatively small compared to the other countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's average sized. So it's not like Malta or, you know, some of these smaller countries. So it's sort of an interesting thing to see this powerful leader, but then his civil servants in in, uh, Brussels being basically tied up, you know, being almost apologists at the same time for him. Now, your article prompted an official reaction from Hungarian spokesman Zoltan Kovac, who wrote a letter that Politico published, uh, which was titled, as you know, Hungarians praised in private, castigated in public. The subheadline was, there are a lot of people in Brussels who secretly admire the way Hungarians and their government go about things. Did you find that claim to be true? Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, depends on who you speak to. People obviously who have a lot of angst towards the institutions feel like they're being slighted. Yes, of course they're going to secretly respect the ones who speak up, you know, and, and take a strong stance. But I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily agree with his, his response in the sense that he was saying it was all rumor and tittle tattles. Uh, I mean, it was all on the record from five of the most influential EU figures in Brussels that are mm-hmm. Hungarian, who none of them, you know, refuted the sense that they 
that their influence was weakened in town. Mm-hmm. It's a club at the end of the day being in the EU. And sure, maybe their, their biggest member, Orban, isn't in town all the time. So when he's not here, they're the ones who are left picking up the pieces from maybe the diplomatic damage that's happening, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. He didn't actually refute anything you wrote. Well, let me just say, Zoltan Kovac, if you're out there, uh, you're welcome to come on next week and uh, give your side of the story. So drop me a line. <laughs> yeah, he just tweeted at me. Uh, and I just responded saying, uh, interesting, your your take is interesting, but I don't know how you can call on the record comments from your officials rumor. Mm. I just have one more question for you. Sure. And maybe this is outside of your purview, but mm-hmm. based on your research for this story, is there any advice you could give to the current Hungarian government that would improve its standing right now and overcome some of the problems you indicated in the piece? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, in a way, the damage is done. <laughs> they have a weak commissioner, so that's a problem. Maybe they can try to get more Hungarians excited about the EU, bring in some strong people, uh, fight for that, fight to fill a director general post. There, there are ways. I mean, keep their standing in the EPP strong because that keep, gives them you know credibility and influence. And I guess continue to work with the other uh, V4 countries. But, you know, I, I saw it as almost a, uh, a lesson for Poland, who's, who's dealing with now the things that Hungary dealt with years back. And yes, it's a bigger country, so I don't know that their influence will be as affected, but it'll be interesting to see if they uh, take the same sort of beating that Hungary did. Tara Palmieri is a reporter and columnist for Political Europe, which is online at political.eu. You can follow her on Twitter at Tara Palmieri, T-A-R-A-P-A-L-M-E-R-I. Tara Palmieri, it was really great having you on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye. And that's it for the show. I'd like to say a big thanks to our two guests today, Kester Eddy and Tara Palmieri, for coming on the show today. And thanks to all of you for putting up with my very weak voice today. Hopefully I'll recover by next week. But we hope you'll keep listening and downloading us as we plan to have a new show out every week and we've got some great ideas for upcoming shows. And if you haven't heard our interview with European Parliamentary member Benedict Javor from last week, make sure you check that out too because it's really worth listening to. Drop us a line. Comments, questions, hate, and or love mail can be sent to info at hungarianpolitics.com or contact us through our website, hungarianpolitics.com. Follow me on Twitter at Nelson Stephen D. And hey, we're now listed in the podcast section of the iTunes store. All right. This show is produced by me, Steve Nelson. Our music is Retro Future Clean by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Thanks again for downloading us, and we hope you'll check us out again next week at the Hungarian Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.